This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, it does feel like a big step forward. Tim and I have been kind of joking about it, laughing about it, kind of excited about it, about Americans being able to now pack their bags for European vacations, the EU lifting those travel curbs for residents of the U.S. However, Tim, non-essential travel between the U.S. and Canada is going to be banned for another month despite mounting pressure from businesses on Justin Trudeau's government to ease restrictions. And then we talked about the U.K. recording the most coronavirus cases in a day since mid-February, that Delta uh, variant really making it tough going there. Yeah, well, let's get into it all with Dr. Ian Lusbader, <clears throat> clinical professor of medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, it is great to have you with us this afternoon. Help us make sense of what exactly is going on with the Delta variant in the UK, where vaccination rates are really high. So uh, happy Friday, everyone. Hope uh, everyone is doing well. Uh, the Delta variant is really a concern, and on this program we've talked about it over the last several weeks, really uh, almost a month ago, when we noticed cases in India uh, where really less than 10% of the population had been vaccinated, which is really a perfect uh, kind of petri dish to have viral replication and mutations. And we've seen COVID certainly has a predisposition to mutate. And unfortunately, the Delta variant, or the Indian variant, uh, is not only uh, more infectious, but has more complications. So uh, people have a higher viral load before they really feel sick. A lot of the symptoms are really common cold symptoms, and people don't even realize until they deteriorate that they have it, runny nose, headache, uh, fever, uh, even cough. It seems very much like a common cold, but the viral levels are much higher. It's much more transmissible so that when people cough or spread it, it's at a much higher level. Fortunately, our vaccines so far, the mRNA vaccines, um, appear to be about 80 to 90 percent effective. So this is yet another good reason. If you haven't been vaccinated, please do get vaccinated uh, because there's a lot of data that if you do get uh, COVID, there are short-term and long-term complications that may be problematic, and we can talk about those later. Well, and one thing I want to ask you about is the CDC came out, I believe it was maybe yesterday or the day before, and they said that the, that Delta, that highly transmissible uh, transmissible COVID-19 variant that first came from India or first identified in India, now makes up at least 10% of all U.S. cases. Is that troubling, especially as we still need a lot of people vaccinated here in the U.S.? It's definitely troubling because there are many parts, especially in the southern states, um, due to vaccine hesitancy, uh, that have not been vaccinated. And so that 10% could certainly grow higher. We know it's a dominant strain uh, in Europe and UK. So they've, they sort of supplanted the UK variant, mm-hmm. you know, with the Delta or Indian variant. So that really is a problem because for people who are not uh, vaccinated, there is a much higher transmissibility. So yes, I think that 10% in the US is going to get worse. And I think that's a real problem. So what's the guidance to all of us who are increasingly walking around with no masks out and about in the world? If you're vaccinated, as you said, we're okay. 
Okay, right. We're protected against this one. Right. It does look that the mRNA vaccines uh, provide about an 88 to 90 percent protection. Now, uh, part of the reason that you want to try and get as much of the globe vaccinated as can be is because you want to break that chain of constant infections, and the more uh, viruses replicate, the more chance they have to mutate. So the real issue is if uh, that Delta variant continues to uh, migrate and continues to mutate, there's a significant risk that it could become uh, pierce the the vaccination uh, protection that's currently going on. Right now, that doesn't appear to be the case, and that's an argument for the southern states or people who've not been vaccinated to get vaccinated. And I understand there's vaccine hesitancy and things on the Internet that scare people about, you know, clots and fertility and a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. Vaccines are not 100% safe, but it is much safer to get a vaccine than to suffer COVID uh, and to suffer the short-term and potentially now we're seeing longer-term potential consequences of COVID, including perhaps uh, uh, brain effects. Right. So so getting vaccinated is really key to break talk, that chain of viral replication. Talk a little bit about, Dr. L- about that, Dr. Lesbader. It was something I was going to ask you about. Uh, there's concern that uh, a new COVID study is, is sort of pointing to a potential loss of, of, of tissue from the brain. Um, this is from a warning from Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former commissioner of the FDA. He was tweeting about this. Right. So there uh, is a study in the UK where they did look at brain scans and did see a loss of brain tissue, cortex, which is uh, the outer part of the brain. And uh, that's really a concern. You know, we know the virus really affects all organs. It's really a vascular uh, tropic uh, virus. And so it can affect the heart with myocarditis and the lungs with lung clots. And we see loss of smell. Uh, very commonly, loss of smell and taste is one of the most common early indications uh, mm-hmm. of, of the infection with COVID. And part of that may be because of uh, brain effects, actually not peripheral like mm. uh, your sense of smell in the nose, but actually CNS or brain effects. And that is really terrifying. We don't really know long term if people are losing brain tissue, wow. what that's going to do in the future. Yeah. to incidents of dementia or other complications longer term. Another right. argument to get vaccinated. Right, right. There's, no, there's things we don't know about the longer term impacts uh, of somebody having COVID. Well, we've talked a lot about the toll beyond the death toll, beyond the hospitalizations, beyond the numbers of COVID. Right. And there's a story in uh, Bloomberg on Bloomberg.com today by our own uh, Katya Dmitrieva and Reed Pickert talking about opioids ripping through the U.S. workforce, deaths at a record level, a record 90,722 overdose deaths in the U.S. for the year through November 20th. Dr. Ian Lusbader is clinical professor of medicine at NYU, NYU's Langone Medical Center. He joins us once again. Um, Dr. Lusbader, what do you, we, we've talked so much about this with you, the idea that the death toll is from COVID is it's, it's beyond what we saw from COVID. It's also people in isolation, people in loneliness. And I think this, I'm wondering what you think of these death toll numbers coming from the opioid crisis. You know, I think the COVID-19 pandemic and home isolation, social isolation has taken a real toll on um, not only our lives, our psyches, our uh, many, many elements of, of, of social fabric. And we talked about is in almost a humorous way the, that people at home become either hunks 
drunks or chunks, mm-hmm. right. meaning they, they, they either uh, embrace the pain and the challenge and say, I'm going to use this opportunity to improve myself, uh, or they say, um, I'm really stressed and I'm going to hide, whether it's in alcohol or food or opioids, and uh, really become a little self-destructive. And I think uh, the healthiest approach is, one, to reduce the availability, and doctors should be very cautious about prescribing opioids, which I think they are, but also empower patients and say, look, if you're feeling down, if you're feeling sad, what's the best approach? And candidly, the best approach is to help other people turn that inward-looking, I'm in pain, I'm having trouble dealing with things, if possible, to look outward and say, how can I make a positive impact on people around me, on a friend, on a family member? Can I make a call? Can I do a good deed for someone? That is the most uh, energizing way to say, I have an important role in life, and um, and I'm not going to take something to ease my own pain and potential risk. Well, before the pandemic, the Trump administration was working a lot on addressing the opioid epidemic in the United States. And I'm wondering if you think that one of the ramifications of the pandemic is that we just don't have the attention of this as a public health crisis, given the fact that we are going through another public health crisis right now. Tim, you're 100% right. Often it's hard for people to do multiple multitasking. And the opioid crisis never went away. It's been here with us for many years. That's a good point. With, right. With, with um, fentanyl and other synthetic substances coming over the border. And it's something that we took our eye off the ball and need to refocus on it, the reasons for it, and how to address it. I think you're absolutely right. I think this worsened it, but it was always with us. Right. The fentanyl in this story talks about this, um, and they talk about it that it can be a hundred times more potent than morphine more than 80 percent of opioid deaths in the 12 months through november 2020 stem from such drugs these synthetic opioids um and they talk about people thinking they're taking cocaine or or they're taking xanax and then finding out that it's it's not it's got fentanyl in it you know the interesting part is um Listen, it has a toll on our society in so many different ways, but it also has an economic impact by these people. uh, The White House once uh, gave out a number, $2.5 trillion costing the U.S. economy from 2015 to 2018 because of the opioid crisis. I mean, this is something that we've got to figure out, uh, Dr. Lesbader. 100%. I think we have to interdict the flow of synthetic uh, fentanyl and opioids, which are coming from overseas, mm-hmm. uh, not, not friends sending it. And it's highly addictive and highly dangerous, much more potent and much more life-threatening. And we also need to address Americans' uh, dependence or uh, uh, preference uh, to try that. And so I think we need to work at both. And right now, there is a flood coming in across the border. And I think we also need to work on our uh, predilection uh, for using it. I want to end on a high note just in the last 30 seconds that we have um, a positive note. I'm I'm, I'm wondering if one thing that, that we can all do this weekend to help us all relax as we get into summer. I definitely think there are plenty of alternative approaches, meditation, regular exercise. TM has been shown to be very effective exercise, but socialize and help someone else do a good deed, make someone else feel better, make a positive contribution, recycle. Anything positive will not only make you feel better, it will make the recipient feel better.
It's a great way to wrap it up. Hey, listen, uh, and you always make us feel better and just uh, giving us so much information, just keeping us uh, up to date. Dr. Ian Lusbader, have a great weekend. Clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So cashing in finally, college athletes are getting ready to finally score, Tim, some serious cash. Joining us now is Bailey Lipschultz, equities reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. Bailey, it's great to have you. What Carol's referring to is coming next month, July 1st, student athletes in at least six states, including Alabama, Florida, Georgia and Texas, they will be able to earn money by doing things like marketing themselves on social media and selling autographs. So what does that mean for U.S. Congress, for laws, for legislation? Well, the big push right now has been for Congress to pass a national standard, something that'll have a level playing field for all 50 states. Um, But there's been a big divide. We've seen at least eight bills introduced in the last year. There's kind of a widespread on both sides, whether they want to include, you know, health insurance, whether players should be able to get paid towards a longer term, whether they can be unionized or be seen as employees. There's a huge debate on uh, Capitol Hill about what that could look like. Um, so there's kind of a crunch, but as of now, it doesn't seem like they're going to get something in ahead of that July 1st date. It's been a long time coming. I mean, we have done so many stories here at Bloomberg, and we know other uh, news outlets have done the same, Bailey, about the amount of money that we know in college sports, wow. where universities and coaches. and coaches paid millions of dollars, and the college athletes get paid nothing. Um, I'm assuming the colleges, a lot of them, not so happy about this? Well, the big thing is that they just want a level playing field. And it's not Mm. that they would get paid. There's no pay-to-play. Pay-to-play is not something that's considered. But the players want to be able to do local ads. If you're a quarterback for Alabama, they want to be able to sign um, to talk about the local car dealership, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that a lot of these players want is, obviously, as you said, the NCAA makes a lot of money on these players. The coaches make a lot of money. They're huge facilities. But the players can't do anything, um, which really stands out because if you're an entrepreneur at Harvard, you can feel free to make money. But if you're a football player, you can't do anything. It's not just the the players, that the athletes that will potentially cash in. They need those marketplaces, those platforms, Bailey, that you write about in order to do so. Talk to us about marketplaces like Open Sponsorship and, and Playbooked. Yeah, so Playbook is a company that was founded by an NAIA athlete. The NAIA is a different athletic association. It's for smaller schools. Um, they actually were allowed to, they passed an NIL, NIL law back in October. So those players are making, you know, 50 bucks for a Twitter, a Twitter post or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Open Sponsor is a company that really just pairs. So they are taking a 20% cut, but their whole role is to be a one-stop platform where players can kind of put themselves and their best foot forward and companies can reach out and try to get paired up and you know whether that's a tweet an instagram post an actual ad um, that's kind of their vision of what this would look like hey bailey states moving on this will that put pressure on the federal government to do something that's been the push and and that's what the ncaa has been asking for Mm -hmm. Um, people had said july 1st obviously is a huge deadline now it's looking like year end might be something that's on the table but there's such a such a divide between what Congress would want, what the federal government would want, that it's kind of a lot of question has been put on the NCAA itself, and they have a huge meeting next week to discuss NIL legislation. Do you think the conversation has really shifted in recent years from this being something that is, okay, totally acceptable by the American people, college athletes should be paid? I think it has, and I think the main thing is, depending who you talk to, it's been a long time coming. We've known that July 1st could be a date. We knew 2021 or 
2022 would be the date. The NCAA has really sat on their hands, and Congress hasn't done much. But if you sit down and really think about it, you should be able to maximize, at least the people who are fans of it, should be able to maximize on your athletic ability because you're only kind of in that spotlight once, and you only have a certain period or stretch where you're, you know, have this opportunity to cash in. And that's the thing that really spreads across a lot of people point to college basketball and college football. But if you're a woman's gymnast at UCLA, you can make a lot, a lot of money off of selling your name, image, and likeness. Right, exactly. Companies, are they kind of excited, though, about this prospect opening up in terms of branding and collaborations and partnerships with collegiate uh, athletes? I think so. And it seems like that, that would be the consensus that would make sense if you could market, you know, when Zion Williamson was at Duke, if you could get him in kind of an Adidas or a Jordan sweatshirt or even a Subway ad, then you could really strike while the iron's hot when these people are, when these athletes are younger and have their own stage. And if you look at a quarterback like Trevor Lawrence from Clemson, I can imagine there are a number of companies that would have loved to take advantage of that. Well, and that's how you tap into a younger audience, too. You've got these yeah. younger athletes tapping into a younger audience, grabbing them, and then having them for decades. Hey, Bailey, when you think about this from a perspective of just dollars and cents, like how much money, you know, obviously there are the huge names, the people you mentioned, the household names at this point, but does it mean that the typical college player on a D1 team is going to be able to actually make some money? Yeah, that's been the thing that Playbook has wanted, and that's kind of what some of these, depending who you talk to in the industry, they're saying is it's it's a story, right? So if there's the backup long snapper on the Texas Longhorns has a really good story or, you know, as a vet, there's going to be an opportunity to make money there because people will want to tell that story through their products. And I think it's, it, it spreads much further than most people think. Most people would think it's the Alabama quarterback, the Ohio State running back, the Syracuse point guard. But there are a lot of markets and a lot of places that look up to these college athletes. And as you said, if they have a couple thousand followers on TikTok, that's an easy way for them to make money in partnered and sponsored posts. Mm. Hey, how likely is it, Bella, that we're going to see um, kind of a quilt of state moves versus uh, federal legislation anytime soon? Could we could we see that ultimately? I think so, at least to start. Um, as, as we've said, you know, July 1st is right around the corner. The NCAA has a big council meeting um, next week at the start of next week. But everyone I talk to in the industry doesn't expect them to pass some blanket law that'll mm-hmm. go through a national level. So it, it seems like it will be states individually picking up where they can, players and schools putting pressure on those states. Um, but it, it definitely will be an interesting interesting ride to see how this plays out because there is a lot of money on the line. Well, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Texas, these are big states, big sports states. I mean, how come, is that just because there is so much sports in there that that's, how this, that's why that this got done uh, kind of first over some other places? Well, a lot of places have signed laws. So, like, California has signed legislation. Michigan has signed legislation. But they go into effect at a later date. Okay. Um, some of these other states, like you, you mentioned in Alabama or Mississippi, um, kind of pushed for sooner rather than later. Florida, actually, uh, earlier, earlier in the spring, had pushed to delay it a year. And then two days later did a complete 180 again and actually said, you know what, we'll have it go into effect this year because quarterbacks um, – like the ones from Miami and Florida State were putting pressure and saying it's ridiculous to keep delaying this and not let us have an opportunity to make money um, on things that rightly they, they believe they should. Hey, Bailey, before we go, just in 10 seconds, the, the big names, the big NCAA athletes, what's a realistic expectation for how much money they'll be able to pull in each year? They estimate that it could be north of the six figures, just depending on the following. It really, truly depends huh. on... Twitter, TikTok, Instagram posts will be big money things for these players. 
Not bad for a college job, right? No, exactly, right? <laughs> That's before you even get out. Yeah. Uh, great stuff. That was a great question. Billy Lipschultz, uh, great story. Equities reporter uh, at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, yesterday, President Biden signed federal law saying that Juneteenth would be a national holiday, a federal holiday. Juneteenth is the June 19th federal holiday to commemorate the end of slavery in the U.S. Joining us now is Shanali Basik, Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News. She's here with us in the Interact- Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Shanali, you spent so much of yesterday on the phone talking to sources speaking to them about what exactly was going on. Uh, Talk to me about the scramble that uh, financial institutions went through yesterday to try to understand, okay, how are we going to commemorate this now that it's a federal holiday? I mean, no joke. Some of them were like, what is everybody else saying? Really? (laughs) Yeah. And so that's how much they were scrambling. Were they really? (laughs) And you know, the thing is, I've been asking for a month because last year was when financial firms really had started to come out and either give a floating holiday or a partial day off. Uh, something really. Uh, I'm so glad you said that you've you've been asking for a month because I think to many observers right now, and Carol mentioned this just a few minutes ago, it seems like, okay, well, this was, you know, more than 150 years in the making, but also I think to a lot of people felt very quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why did it catch so many companies off guard? I I don't know. (laughs) Because I bet their their diversity and inclusion, you know, departments knew that this was coming. They've spent a lot of money in DNI in the last couple months, billions of dollars, right? Over the last 12 months, they've hired people to Mm -hmm. hold them accountable on stuff like this. So uh, Juneteenth, you know, the thing that's surprising is many federal holidays have become market holidays. Right. There is no consensus yet on whether this will be a market holiday, though they are looking into it for next year. We'll see how it all plays out. We have talked to a lot of people, especially uh, a lot of former black bankers as well, and some of them say this is the least they could do, is give the day off. Others say, I don't care whether they give us the day off or not, there should be parity when it comes to pay and promotion. That's what they... What people want to see at the end of the day. Well, you know, you were, we had Pharrell Williams on yesterday and who said, listen, obviously this is important, this is great, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Exactly. Uh, when it comes to, you know, equality and DNI, certainly within the Wall Street community. I do wonder about the pressure among black employees at these firms and what kind of sway they might have. Well, it's so interesting to ask because the numbers are still so poor, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers are very low when it comes to black employees at the firms and the executive ranks are less than 3% typically. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's how stark it is. And we know the broader population is closer to 13 percent mm-hmm. so the banks do have a long way to go uh, and the, what what it really comes down to is watching year after year it's not really enough to kind of do things when everybody's looking right it, it's a matter of consistency and making sure people follow up the year after the year after and the year after right we'll talk about why markets closing isn't just an easy thing for a, a you know, a, a market to decide to do. I mean, these these are publicly traded companies, the Nasdaq and you know Intercontinental Exchange, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange. You lose money if you do that. <laughs> yeah, you lose money. The thing that's interesting is it's is it easy to do? I've talked to some current and former executives, and what they've told me is, listen, when a former president dies, you close the market pretty quickly. And in the case of a natural disaster, the same would be the case. So it's not that it's hard to do or impossible to do by any means, but with that said, it takes banks, broker dealers, sign off by the regulators, and it's not 
when, when you ask anyone, they say it's the market's decision. Well, who's the market? So that's where the complication lies. But I always think about, you know, walking the talk. Like, if you really want to send a very strong message right away, right. like, to have had the president maybe sign it, then everybody say, okay, Monday's a holiday. Like, right. or so, you know what I mean? Right. Or, you know, to kind of do that would send a very strong message about, especially when you know you've been talking to all of these big banks uh, and members from their community about the importance of diversity and inclusion um, but we still continue to talk about, well, all right, that's talk. Where's the actions? This could have been a very big big sign and a big action. Huge sign. And also the thing is people act like it's a holiday for a portion of the population. No, this is a holiday that is now a federal holiday. Right. <laughs> and that's the point, right? A lot of our reporters have been speaking to a lot of people about today. The, there's a new corporate kind of speech now where people it's an American think, holiday. It's an American holiday, exactly. It's not a holiday just for a subset of people. So that's something to consider as we consider how to. Yeah. Is it so? If 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 the banks decide to make this a holiday, some have decided to make it a floating holiday. Um, does that sort of foretell that markets will be closed? Because for all so intents and no. purposes, no. No, the interesting thing is no. Some of the banks, particularly the investment banks, have been waiting for kind of broader consensus from the securities industry. But the interesting thing and the strongest moves we've seen so far are Bank of America and JP Morgan, the two biggest lenders, closing their branches starting next year on Juneteenth. So that is, that's another, right? Why does the market need to be open if the two largest lenders decide mm-hmm. that branches. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, here? it feels like there's a little testing of the waters. I mean, basically, if the SEC or some, right, or FINRA came out and said, yeah, we're going to close markets. I mean, obviously, then that's a done deal. And I do wonder if someone like a Jamie Dimon, right, could come out and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to shut it all down. I bet a lot of folks would follow. Or not. Or not. <laughs> well, right, but, but, but they want it to be level, right? They, yes, cause, exactly. Because there is, as you say, money to be made. Yeah, and everything could just be closed hmm. next year. We don't know how it will play out in the end. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? I know. None of this is straightforward. And what is amazing, though, Carol and and Shanali, and we, you know, Shanali and I anchored a quick take focus on this today, is like this was more than 150 years in the making. Many states had already observed it, but it still caught a lot of companies off guard. Yeah. I really find that interesting, shocking. A lot of words, adjectives. (laughs) Um, Shanali, good stuff as always. Uh, Bloomberg News, Wall Street reporter, Shanali Basak in our interactive broker's studio. Check her out too at Shanali Basak on Twitter. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So just about ten and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Charlie bringing down uh, the latest on the trade for you. And it's definitely a down day, particularly when it comes to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, down 1.3%, 1% lower on the S&P and the NASDAQ, down three quarters of a percent. Mike McClone just saying, you know, kind of uh, market's doing the Fed's work for it. And the Fed pricking the bubble, bubble a little bit when it comes to some asset prices. So let's get into it, though. Time for the drive to the close. And we're going to do it with Alan Zafrin. He's founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, it's 
it's nice to have you here. It's been an interesting week. We're all still trying to make sense of what the Fed did, but it does feel like, you know, maybe they took some of the froth out of the markets here. Hey, Carol, great to be on. And you know what? Mission accomplished. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right. Isn't it exactly what they wanted? We're going to have inflation run a little faster than we thought. Maybe it runs a year or two, a little faster than we thought, and then we get to our 2% inflation rate. And who would have thought massive printing from the Fed as a result of a pandemic lets the Fed finally get to that 2% inflation level that we haven't seen in over a decade? So mission accomplished. Let's let's get not a lot, just a little tiny bit of air out of the bubble, and then let's re- recalibrate because once we get into next year, we're going to be back in the slow-growing, plodding economy we knew from 2010 to 2019. And in that kind of environment, the companies that can still have competitive moats, strong balance sheets, and growth despite a slow economy are going to dominate. That's why you're seeing this rotation right now. Yeah. It's People are already looking ahead, and they're saying, wow, there really isn't a lot of growth in this economy. And that's why the 30-year and 10-year bond yields have plummeted in the last two trading sessions. We're flattening on the yield curve, and we're starting here. It's going to take time, but we're starting here to reposition back to what the markets and the economy looked like before COVID. Well, how much That's more what's going on right now, mm-hmm. Alan? How much more air can be let out of out of the bubble? Well, uh, hey, I, I don't like that term bubble because I'm going to tell you I don't think we are in a bubble as it relates to the U.S. stock market. I think we are in a world where valuations for stocks are going to continue to trade well above long-term averages because in a world of low interest rates and very little returns on cash or bonds and the money's got to go somewhere, it goes into stocks. And so, you know, are valuations a little bit high potentially on selected software companies or biotech companies or certainly on third-tier value-oriented commodity companies that needed an excessively fast economy to persist? Yeah, maybe a little. But things aren't grossly overvalued. Money's got to go somewhere. Cash is trash. Long-term you know, tax-free bonds are less than 1% are a better deal. So we kind of go a- go back to what we saw after the financial crisis and the reset there. We know it was pretty dismal for a while, but we then were slow and low for a long time. Is that ultimately where you think we go back to? Yes, okay. it is. And uh, here's why. Number one, we have an aging population. So just take a look at Japan, look at Europe, something like 10,000 people a day turn age 65, the whole baby boomer generation, when you get older, you spend less. So that slows down economic growth. Secondly, you've got this massive debt, $28 trillion in counting from the U.S. government. It's got to be paid for. And paying that debt off slows down economic growth. It crowds out private investment. And thirdly, if you're in the U.S. government, you can't afford for interest rates to go up too high because you've got to finance your debt. And so for all those reasons, Um, you're going to end up in this slow, plodding along environment. And to make matters even more accentuated on interest rates, you're getting actually some real technological advances pushing prices down and eliminating jobs. There's less wage inflation, which is the biggest component of inflation. So interest rates aren't going to go anywhere if you have an aging population, a big debt load, and technological advances. Rates just can't go up much. But, But the economy still grows just enough right, for solid businesses with growth to keep turning out their profits. And that's why, Tim, we get back to the higher than average valuation. Yeah. Money's got to go somewhere. 
Alan, I got to tell you, if I were a policymaker and I were listening to you right now, I would I would kind of be freaking out right now because I would say, wait a second, what we want to do is we want to see stronger growth than we saw from 2010 to 2019. We want to see uh, employment. Uh, we want to see employees get paid more. We want to see wage growth. What are policymakers to do? You're correct. That's why, as an example, one of the Fed governors, Neil Kashkari, is arguing we shouldn't raise rates until 2023. He's in the minority now, but... He's saying we haven't given enough employment a chance. So there is this tension, if you will, between trying to stoke inflation and, frankly, trying to broaden uh, the wealth to a broader a broader amount of citizens across the entirety of the U.S. versus not letting inflation get out of control. Of course, the problem is it's incredibly difficult for a centralized organization like the Federal Reserve to pinpoint perfectly where rates should be to get the perfect amount of growth. They can't. They can't see three years forward. They're doing the best they can. But it is, as a policy policymaker, it is troubling to the degree that you're trying to broaden out full employment, especially in a world where jobs, um, the high-paying jobs certainly are being challenged by technological progress. Um, it's, it's, we're going to have continued economic inequality. That problem is not going away anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's it's a, it's something we've been talking about, about reskilling of workers to really meet the, the new jobs that are in demand at this point. So, okay. As you pointed out so rightly, Alan, at the beginning, is that when it comes to investing, you know, investors are constantly, you know, seeking yield. I've said that a million times over the last couple of years, and you're constantly comparing, you know, asset class to asset class. So in the meantime, equities, it's going to be, it looks like a smart argument. But again, where do you want to be? Well, you want to be, as it relates to stocks, if you're in a slow-growing environment, this is why growth stocks outperform value stocks over the last 10 years. A mm-hmm. slow-growing economy mandates that a company can grow its profits regardless of the economic environment. So you tilt more in the long run towards those growth stocks. As it relates to yield, to the extent that you still have reasonable real estate choices, not necessarily urban office space, but in general, selected real estate REITs certainly would make a lot of sense in this environment. And lastly, senior floating rate debt in a world of Mm. low interest rates are selected ways in which to create yield that go beyond conventional long-term, uh, you know, low-yielding fixed-income vehicles. So you have to be a little more choosy about where you put your capital if you're looking for a yield. Mm-hmm. But you still need to make sure that the underlying fundamentals or creditworthiness to where you're getting your yield are still fundamentally solid. Don't go chasing highly leveraged businesses when the economy slows. It may not end well. Alan, talk more about where you're seeing the opportunity for equities, specifically when it comes to international. Is there a market that you're particularly interested in? Um, well, I would tell you technology transcends borders. So, uh, mm-hmm. again, and technology is the biggest place to grab yeah. growth. And there are absolutely, there is, um, I would still argue that environments both in Asia, certain selected parts of emerging Asia, as well as even in continental Europe, aren't actually as up to speed on various technological advances as you would think. So always, always software as a service is a place to look. And I would tell you that the pullback we had with the value rotation up until a couple days ago, I still think on a long-term basis getting large, Global franchises that happen to sell into non-U.S. markets is the better way to play it. I think the businesses are managed better within the U.S. All right. Good stuff, as always. And we always appreciate when you join us. Alan, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Alan Zaffron, his founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital, on the phone with us once again from Foster City, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.